indeed, amen. Well, today, we continue our consecutive expository series in the book of Mark, or the Gospel of Mark. It's Mark's account of an event that we're going to be reading in just a few moments. And remember, we are now in the hinge of Mark's book. The first part is already behind us that was focusing on Jesus' identity. Now, he's in the middle and going toward Jerusalem to ultimately fulfill the purpose for which he came. And our scripture reading this morning is Mark chapter 10. Mark's gospel chapter 10, beginning at verse 1 through verse 12. I would ask you once again now, whether looking on the screen or with your Bibles or devices, follow along with me. And remember, this is not the word of men, but the word of the living and true God. Hear it with great attention. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him, ask, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate and in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter and he said to them whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her and if she divorces her husband and marries another she commits adultery. Let's ask God's blessing upon this, his holy word. Let us pray. Almighty God, your word sometimes has sharp edges. It has things that challenge us and make us uncomfortable in light of our weakness. But, O Lord, your word is truth Sanctify us through that truth. Help us to be willing to hold fast that which is true and that which is unchanging. And Father, give us grace that we might live before you and walk in ways that please you. 
And we ask all of this now, asking that you send your Holy Spirit, Lord, to open our eyes and illumine our understandings to this passage. And will you forgive the sins of the one who seeks to explain it? For they are many. And we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. In the first half of the 20th century, the proliferation of divorce was growing and was alarming. At that time, in 1910, it was 10%. And that was thought to be unbelievably destructive, unbelievably uh, damaging, and something to be very concerned about. By 1948, it had grown to 25%, a quarter of all marriages ending in divorce. Well, today, as we know, that rate is continued to skyrocket. And it is more than 50%. Half the marriages won't make it long term. On top of that, masses of young people are repudiating the whole institution of marriage altogether. And they're opting to cohabitate without a marriage contract to unite and bind them. Cohabitation is now commonplace. And it's culturally acceptable in most places. Even in some eyes of those who profess to be believers in Christ. My friends, this should not be. And more importantly, it was not intended to be by God. This is not the way it was supposed to be. And as Christians, we are called to take our cues from the word of God, not from the world, not from the culture around us. In today's passage, the Pharisees are at it again. They're looking for another opportunity to condemn Jesus. And they think they've got a really good shot at this one. Because they decide to use the virtual hot potato of divorce to trap Jesus. To get him to slip up and either be condemned by the people and they would get the le- a leg up on him in terms of the power, in terms of of being listened to, and that they would be able to get rid of him, or perhaps someone else would do them a favor and get rid of Jesus just like that other guy they got rid of. Today's outline is this. The departure for Judea, the discussion of divorce, And the disciples' question. That's basically 1 through 10 or 12 of our text that we read. Now, the the first point is just about the first verse. Likely, Jesus was leaving Capernaum. Remember, he had started down and headed south. And he was at Capernaum in our last episode. But now he's leaving, most likely Capernaum. And he and his disciples are heading south for Judea. 
because Jesus is now turning his face like flint and going toward the cross. However, the particular route that Jesus and his disciples took was one that was often taken. Jesus had previously gone straight through Samaria, but this time he goes around and crosses the Jordan River. This route takes him to cross the Jordan River into an area, Roman-controlled area, all of that Palestine was controlled by Rome, but there were subdivisions or sublets, if you will, and this particular area, Perea, was controlled by Herod Antipas. Now that name ought to uh, uh, ring a bell. This is the same one who ultimately had John the Baptist beheaded. So John, and you know why? He went, stopped preaching and went to meddling. He told Herodias, you have not done right. You have illegitimately divorced and married another. And she was doing it multiple times. She was a serial adulterer. So, that's where the Pharisees decide to try to trap Jesus in the territory of Herod Antipas. We can't be sure, but the Pharisees may have chosen this particular area in order to provoke a political opposition to Jesus from the same Herod that had John the Baptist beheaded. Think of it like this. Maybe they were thinking, hey boys, we can have a twofer. Got John? On this subject, let's get Jesus too. Same bait. Let's get into the details of the controversial subject of divorce. You see, it has always been difficult in a fallen world. Now, secondly, the discussion on divorce itself, verses 2 through 9. The Pharisees spring their trap on Jesus with a question. They're just hoping he's going to take the bait. And they say, teacher, rabbi, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They felt either way that Jesus answered, he was going to fall into a trap. They had him this time. He wasn't going to be able to wiggle out. But Jesus answers their question with another question. (laughs) Jesus always seemed to be... (laughs) Many steps ahead of these guys. They, 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 weren't, uh, they weren't smart as they thought they were. So Jesus answers their question with a question. In verse 3, notice what he says. In verse 3 he says, What did Moses command you? What did Moses command you? Now, he's referring to Deuteronomy chapter 24, 1-4. You can read it later today. Interesting, but it was setting up circumstances in a fallen world. Everything does not go right. Things don't always go according to plan. But Moses was trying through God's spirit, he was trying to supply something that would be workable when people mess things up. Moses did not ever, though, command divorce. 
But the Pharisees believed that he did. Rather, he assumed its reality and he provided stipulations to protect both parties in a marriage. Some kind of stipulation to protect both. Why then did Jesus say command? Why did he use that word? Well, the Pharisees, as I said, were treating Moses' teaching on, on divorce as an absolute command. You've got to do this. In fact, it was only a concession by God in light of our depravity. In light of human depravity. So, Jesus is redirecting them. He is turning them a different direction to saying, you guys need to back this thing way up. You're way too far down the line. Let's go back to the beginning. The concession God made was in light of our sinfulness. So Jesus redirects them from what God permits to what he originally commanded and directed. He gets them off of what God permits. Gets them off of playing the game. Of what about this? What about that? What about this circuit? What if this happened? That often happens when you try to have this discussion. It was happening then. Jesus says, no, no. No, let's take it back. All the way back to the beginning. His ultimate intention for human relationships. That's where Jesus was going. That's what he was trying to get everybody's focus on then, and he's trying to get everyone's focus on now, here today, within the sound of my voice or wherever you hear this or see this. You see, in verses 6 through 8, Jesus' first focus is on intimacy. Intimacy. To prove his point, Jesus quotes from two texts, Genesis 1, 27, and from chapter 2, verse 24. Now, and interestingly, Jesus does not do like the Pharisees. He doesn't argue from tradition. You know, the Pharisees were always saying, well, uh, Father, uh, Rabbi so-and-so says, well, the, the Father said, you know. No, Jesus goes straight to the Scriptures. The Scriptures, which cannot be broken They can't be altered. They can't be fixed by men and their musings and their glosses and their additions and their hedges like the Pharisees were so prone to do. Jesus argues not from tradition but scripture. And he takes the conversation back to the creation design in mankind's pre-fallen state. All the way back to the garden before Adam and Eve fell. Now according to Jesus, the creation account establishes, listen very carefully, his original intention, the creation account establishes exclusive, hear my words carefully, heterosexual, male and female, lifelong monogamy as God's created intent for marital relationships that's God's intent God's intent for marriage 
Becoming one flesh is a powerful thing. And though throughout history, men have often treated women not as partners, but as property. Jesus was saying in the beginning, it was not so. They were partners. And the new entity takes priority over all previous allegiance. Both to parents and to one's individual rights. Oh, how we hear that today. I, my right. What I need. I have a right to this. I have a right to my own rights, rights, rights. Jesus said that's not the plan for marriage. It's not about rights. It's about sacrifice and service to one another to make the whole greater. To make the union greater and God glorifying and helpful to this broken world. You see... Interestingly, in 1 Corinthians, again, back to this individual rights thing, in 1 Corinthians 7, 4, this is what we read. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now, at this point, the guys are going, yeah, like that. Read on, gentlemen. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Equal Rights to each other in the service of each other. Not of self. Not of taking advantage of. My friends, any other, hear me carefully, any other sexual union, no matter how it is tolerated, accepted, or lauded in our time, Any other sexual union is outside of God's purpose and will for human sexuality. There is no plan B. There are no late coming exceptions and additions. Then in verse 9, the focus of Jesus is on permanence. The first section, 6 through 8, was on intimacy, exclusive intimacy in the marriage relationship. Then in verse 9, the focus is on permanence. Since marriage is a sacred union accomplished by God Himself, it's not just an agreement that two people decide to get together, share a bed. If that's, all, if, if that's all it was, a lot of us might have gotten out a long time ago. If it was just that. No, it's a vow, a covenant before God, the creator, who has set the stage and set the standards of what brings about human flourishing and glorifies him and makes us a better world. Since marriage is a sacred union accomplished by God himself, no human being has the right to rip that union apart. Jesus said, let no man separate. In the beginning, in the idea, in the plan of God, there was never any thought of divorce, ever. 
God's idea was and is a monogamous, intimate, and enduring relationship until death do us part. And anything less is a departure from God's original intent. I hope I'm being clear. Listen to Malachi. You want to see how God really sees marriage and what's at stake if we don't do it his way? Listen to Malachi chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. This is God speaking to his people. You ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner. You're supposed to protect her, not abuse her. You're supposed to protect her, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. You're supposed to get together and bring more godly offspring into this world. So, be on guard. And do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife says the Lord, the God of Israel does violence to the one he should protect. Says the Lord Almighty, so be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Would that we would listen to God, but now we're smarter. We think we can find happiness We know a better way. Just change them in, change them out interchangeably. Get a new one when it gets hard. Thirdly, the disciples question, verses 10 through 12. If Jesus' words were surprising already, and they were, because Jesus was talking about a both-way street, not just a... This is all about men and their rights. He was talking about it both ways, going both ways. Both can be in the wrong if they are the ones that are trying to break the union that God intended. If Jesus' words were surprising to the disciples, this additional private instruction he gave them in the house is even more shocking. We saw that in verses 10 through 12. Not only is divorce contrary to God's purpose, Jesus says, but it results in adultery when the divorced spouse remarries. Jesus is not giving a lot of wiggle room there. You see, if the first marriage is permanent, in God's eyes, then the remarriage after divorce is equivalent to adultery against the former wife. Or if it's the other way around, the husband. Now, up until this point, 
I've been attempting to be explanatory, to exposit this, to explain this, and to be principled. What are the principles? We get down too often in the details and we don't grasp the principles, right Ian? The principles, I've tried to be principled, but now I want to be intensely pastoral because we live in a fallen world and we are broken and we break things. Now, this is what I believe. I believe, I think with considerable confidence, at least on these things, that divorce is permitted for sexual immorality. I think that's pretty clear. Or, as we go on and see what Paul adds to this instruction from the same source, the Holy Spirit, the desertion of an unbelieving spouse. And remarriage to a believer is granted to the innocent party. Now, personally, this is just me, personally, I also believe in light of 2 Corinthians 5, 17. This is a deduction, but I think it's sound. In light of 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that a pre-conversion unbiblical divorce would not prohibit someone from remarrying in the Lord. However, there are other situations that people experience that are not directly addressed here in this text or in any other place in Scripture. A number are. A number of examples, things that happened were spoken to either by Jesus or by Paul. But you know what? Some things weren't. Not directly. What about wife abuse? What about children abuse in the home? Those things weren't spoken to directly, but they have to be approached principally. And you know where that ultimately falls and that job falls to? It falls to leadership in the church. Pastors and elders. To figure out in this broken, messed up, confused world how do we apply the biblical principles to specific, very painful and often very difficult situations. You, my Congregation, please pray for your pastors and elders to be given the wisdom of Solomon to apply these principles in real life and very often difficult and painful situations. But that we would be true to the word of God and pastoral and also compassionate and understanding of the brokenness and failure of all of us. That we have failed and broken every one of God's commandments. This is talking about adultery. You remember? Jesus said, if you look upon a woman with lust, you are an adulterer. So who among us is innocent? None. You need to pray for your leaders. But, but someone says, but Joe, what about the offending party in divorce? The one who did it wrong. The one who did not have biblical grounds for their divorce. What about that? 
Well, my friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm going to let someone else speak to that. The late, great R.C. Sproul. I'm going to let someone speak from the grave on that specific subject. Listen. R.C. Sproul on divorce says this. Finally, we must not forget the vital role of the gospel in these matters. What difference does the gospel make when we mess up? Anyone who has been through an illegitimate divorce or sinned sexually against his or her spouse needs to know that these are not unforgivable sins. Did you hear that? These sins are what sent Christ to the cross. And all who put their trust in Him will be forgiven. The kingdom of God is not closed to those who are divorced. And all of us in the church should be quick to share the good news with those marriages that have failed and are hurting so much. We need to be there to come around those that have made mistakes, maybe not done it right, but show them the grace of God. Show them compassion. Help them through. This has all kind of implications. My brothers and sisters, remember Luther's Psalm 31, or Psalm 130, excuse me, Psalm 130. I love one line in there. and It so speaks to my heart and probably to yours too. Though great our sin and sore our woes, His grace much more aboundeth. His helping love no limit knows. Its utmost need he soundeth. Our shepherd good and true is he who will at last his Israel free from all our sins and sorrows. My friends, in light of such an amazing grace, in light of such a gospel, in this, in all areas, I say to you and to me, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Amen? Let us pray. Oh, Father, you know I'm not adequate. But I pray that if anything that I have spoken or said is not true to your word, you would show me, you would open my eyes, enable me to, to back up, to make it clear if I misspoke. Father, I pray, though, that you would help us keep our eye on the principle, on the original intention, and not get down and try to, to get into the weeds of figuring out like the Pharisees were doing the games that they played, trying to parse everything out in a way that would be to their advantage. Father, we're so prone to that. Help us see the big picture. Help us have eyes to see, oh God. 
And thank you for the, for the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to die for adulterous sinners like me. And Lord, like everyone, if we read what you said in the Sermon of the Mount carefully, we all may not have done things physically in the fullest expression, but Lord, in our hearts, we have all failed and we need your continued grace and forgiveness and mercy. And show us how to give that to others. Spare us from any sanctimonious self-righteousness and judgmental pride. Oh God, we are all sinners begging bread. Feed us, O oh bread of heaven. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.